0: you spent all these years studying one very specific thing and you're the expert in this one equation or one approach in the sciences. And while yes, you may be the expert in that one thing and smart in that one specific area, ironically it's made you dumber in like every other area. Science and Social Justice is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. And this is an awesome episode because we have Serafina Nance. Sarafina is a PhD candidate in astrophysics at UC Berkeley, where she examines exploding stars to better understand the composition, evolution, and fate of the universe. She focuses on the evolutionary history of Betelgeuse, one of the brightest stars, <laughs> one of the brightest stars in the Orion constellation and probing the structure of supernova, of supernova, pre-supernova stars using asteroseismology. Uh, an avid science communicator, she wrote a children's book about astronomy called Little Leonardo's Fascinating World of Astronomy. She hosts a TV, astro- she hosts an astronomy TV show called Constellations and was featured by Forbes as one of 30 inspirational women for Women's History Month in March 2021. Uh, so, a lot of pressure here since we're talking about the universe. <laughs> Let me preface this by saying uh, I'm no astrophysicist, but I occasionally dabble in astrology. Uh, oh, God. Yep. I don't, <laughs> I don't study stars, but I love Star Wars. And uh, I don't know much about, I'm, I'm no analog astronaut, but I do love Astral Land uh, at Coney Island in Brooklyn. So, Sarafina, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. So happy that we got this. Thank done.
1: you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm I'm stoked to be here. It's always fun to talk astronomy with people who aren't in the field. So I'm excited.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, well, I promise this episode will be out of this world. But uh, let's let's stay grounded and talk about you. And I promise that's the last sort of joke, lame joke I have about <laughs> <laughs> space travel. Uh, <laughs> So, so, so let's talk about let, let's kick this off and talk about you. Obviously, you know you, you've had like a, a lot of really great accomplishments as of late with with Forbes and in your book. So, so let let's take it back and and talk about how you why you got into astrophysics and maybe uh, describe a day in the life for somebody who maybe wants to become an astrophysicist one day. Uh, so, how how did you get into astrophysics and what what's a day in the life of an astrophysics grad student?
1: Yeah. Um, Um, So I have sort of a cliche story in that I fell in love with the night sky when I was like four years old and knew then and there that I wanted to do something with the sky, whether it was astronomy, whether it was becoming an astronaut. I didn't really care. I was just like, I need to spend my life um, learning about, about our universe. And for me, that meant sort of pushing beyond, I think my comfort zone. Um, You know, I never really felt like I was particularly good at math or science, but I loved this thing so much that I just kept trying to make it work. Um, And so, you know, I I studied physics and astronomy in undergrad and um, really physics was a, a a way in order for me to do astronomy. I didn't. I didn't love physics, but I was like, you know, you need physics to understand our universe. So it's kind of the whole point. And so I um, studied both of those, and then came to grad school for astrophysics. And um, as you said in the intro, I have been focusing primarily on exploding stars, also called supernova. And then using these types of stars to better understand our universe. Um, And so, right now, I am basically doing theoretical work where I run simulations and I, you know, basically code all day, every day of my entire life. Um, And I do observational work. So, I get to actually use big telescopes to gather data about our universe and then analyze it to uncover sort of really cool things about. About what's
0: up there? Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I've uh, as as anybody would say, like they've always been really fascinated with the universe and stars and planets. But but you know, the actual science and technology involved in observing the night sky and physics, how important physics and physics is is for studying all this, I think, is often underestimated in popular media. So like, how would you describe like, you know, let's say, uh, how would you describe like, so in the neurosciences experiments, you know, can take months or weeks to get done (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you really wouldn't have like a definitive conclusion about what you're looking at until like, I don't know, like a year into your experiment because you're doing several smaller experiments to like paint a picture. Totally. Yeah. So how would you describe like, a, a An experiment like that or are experiments like that or do you even do experiments in astrophysics uh, when trying to like uh, prove your hypothesis and whatnot like what how how are experiments different in astrophysics as compared to the other other sciences
1: so it's it is interesting because the lab quote-unquote in astronomy is either your computer or a telescope right you're not Measuring things in a in a quote unquote lab, um, you are basically using clever tools to measure things that are far 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 away, um, and you need to be really clever about how you go about solving those problems. So, an experiment would be um, for an observational astronomer could be you know I'm going to monitor a star's brightness every day or every night for the next six months or for the next year. Um, That's one version of of a project. For a theoretical astronomer, it could be, you know, I'm going to run a thousand simulations about, you know, a black hole or a, an exploding star. And then I'm going to change different parts of those simulations to try to understand how different physical attributes might affect my object that I'm studying. Um, so when I was doing, uh, sort of these supernova simulations, I would study things like, you know, wind mass loss. So how fast is the star rotating? How can I, you know, turn the knob on the star's rotation and on how much wind, um, the star is expelling and how does that change how fast it explodes? How, how quickly, um, that explosion happens. So the experiments are, in some ways, not as fun as they might be in some other sciences because you're not you're not hands on actually doing things. You have to use the tools at your disposal to then measure um, things that are very far away.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because because um, <laughs> really, like, what are the dependent and independent variables that you usually think about in an experiment? When trying to observe the universe, so I feel like yeah. it's a lot of it's a. I'm sure it's a lot of modeling, mathematical modeling, yeah. uh, uh, of the universe as opposed to hands-on laboratory bench work. So,
1: exactly. It seems
0: yeah, it seems like it's a lot more, uh, a lot more theoretical and modeling than it is hands-on, like in other sciences. So that's that's yeah. really interesting. Um, and so Beetlejuice, which is is the star that you focus on, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So why Beetlejuice out of the tens of millions of stars?
1: Other than it has a great name? Yeah, no. Um, so when I first got into supernova, you know, one of the things that, you know, as I sort of hinted at earlier is it's very hard to study stars that are super far away. That's one of the reasons why the James Webb Space Telescope is so exciting is because we get to study some of the earliest stars in our universe because it's a huge telescope and it's in space. So our job is made incredibly difficult by, you know, measuring things that are increasingly far away. Betelgeuse is an exciting target because it's pretty close. Um, It's about 600 light years away, which in astronomy is actually pretty close. Um, And it is going to explode. And so we are trying to observe it, model it uh, in order to understand when it's going to explode, what that might look like from Earth, how we might be impacted. We won't be. Don't worry. Um, But, you know, we will be able to see it in our night sky. It's close enough that we'll be able to see this sort of bright shining object for, um, you know, brighter than the moon for over a month. Um, And so that's really exciting from not even just an astronomy perspective, but from a human perspective to be able to see a new object in our night sky. Um, So that's why we study it is it's close enough to us that it will directly impact at least our night sky, which is cool.
0: Yeah. And and I think um, what I learned recently about stars is that they have like lifespans. And not mm-hmm. a lifespan in the sense of like a candle that you light and then it goes out, but stars have like a beginning, like a birth, a life, and then an end.
1: Right.
0: Uh, and this is something that um, is really interesting to me because there's also like a diversity of stars in the universe, aren't there? Like not yes. just not just the the stars that we see, not just the star we see every day, which is the sun, but they comes in they come in all shapes and sizes, right?
1: Yes, exactly. So, you know, not all stars explode at the ends of their lives. So, a star like our sun will sort of fizzle out um, and become what we call a white dwarf. But there are stars that do explode. There are stars that become black holes after they die. Um, And all of their sort of evolutionary tracks and how they die and what they become when they die is based on how big they are. And so, that diversity of stars directly informs, um, you know, how they live and what, you know, when they die and what they become.
0: Wow. And I, and can you describe like, uh, what would you say are like the primary, I guess, tools that an astrophysicist uses when observing the age of a star? Mm,
1: That's a good question. So, I think a, a common misconception about astronomers is that we, you know, we take out our telescopes and we put our eye up to the eyepiece and we get to, you know, directly observe the universe. And I wish that's what we did, but we don't. Um, we basically sit in a control room with our computers, and the control room is adjacent to the telescope. So basically, you have this huge telescope in a dome. It's in pitch black light, you can't see anything because any light that you have in there will um, mess up whatever images you're collecting. And then you're, you know, you're in your control room and you're collecting data. Um, and that data is little pixels that show up on your computer. And when you put all of those pixels together, will create an image of what hmm. you are directly observing. Um, so that's sort of the number one tool that. Um, observers use when they look at the night sky
0: i see and so but then there are also those those stars and celestial bodies that might be too far away uh for traditional instruments to to recognize right exactly Uh, yeah uh and one such instrument that recently launched that i'm personally very excited about that can measure those really far away objects would be the James Webb Telescope, correct?
1: Yes, Yeah. So, uh, actually today is a big day for the James Webb Space Telescope. I don't know if we decided to record today because there was, gonna,
0: gonna oh yeah, totally. Exciting. I totally planned it out. <laughs> I know exactly um, what's going on.
1: <laughs> so yeah, this, uh, this. Huge, the biggest telescope we have ever launched. It's a once in a generation space telescope that will observe, you know, the very first light of our universe uh, 13 and a half billion years ago. Um, We launched it on Christmas Day of 2021, and today it has successfully unfolded. So it is now a telescope in space that will then collect data. Um, Starting in the next couple of months, which is really exciting.
0: Twenty years and ten billion dollars for this once in a generation telescope—that we should be really, really proud of. Uh, Because, as as in all sciences, there are always surprises and setbacks with anything you do, including building a ten billion dollar telescope. But Uh you know, I'm really one of the reasons I'm really proud of this telescope is because it really shows like how collaborative and, and international science is in order to produce like really great scientific achievements because you have nasa european space agencies uh launching this launching this this telescope from from french guyana in in south america uh it's really an international effort and that to me shows like that to me is always one of the greatest achievement achievements in the sciences is working together and even like during this pandemic when I remember, like when this pandemic first started, everyone was looking to Italy. What's going on with Italy? Why mm-hmm. they're the ones that have the spike in the, uh, of COVID right now around the world? Uh, and scientists uh, in the U.S. would collaborate with their colleagues in Italy to right. find out about this virus before it hit the U.S. Uh, and and science has always been collaborative like that, not only between nations but between fields as well, uh, as I'm sure the James Webb Telescope is. Uh, And, you know, ordinary optical telescopes like the Hubble, for example, would see, could see things that are visible to the human eye, but the James Webb telescope can see primarily infrared light. That's right. So why infrared light and not visible light for the James Webb telescope? That's
1: a great question. And it's actually exactly related to my research and for me one of the most incredible things about astronomy so that's sort of the question of how we study anything in astronomy is how do we see it right and most of the things that we're observing are really far away or emit in wavelengths that the human eye can't pick up and so we create these telescopes that are designed to pick up those wavelengths and the question is why infrared? Why not? Why not visible light? Why not ultraviolet light? And the answer is that we are observing things that are so far away that are born at the very beginning of our universe, right after the Big Bang. That light has taken 13 and a half billion years to reach our telescope. That is, you know, currently at L2 or the Lagrangian uh, location in space.
0: Wait, you said 13 13? and a half billion years to reach our telescope?
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's mind-blowing. It's like, it really is. It's astonishing. Um, And so the light that, that we are receiving was emitted 13 and a half billion years ago. And that light is being stretched as it travels through space. Because, and here's like the crazy thing, because space-time itself is expanding. Because our universe is not static, it is expanding. It is constantly getting bigger and bigger and bigger with time. And as the universe gets bigger, light that travels throughout the universe gets stretched along with it. And so it moves wavelengths from visible to infrared.
0: E. So, <laughs> so let me get this straight here. Uh, yes. <laughs> so basically, so basically you're saying that like the f- further something is in the universe, the longer wavelength light, the longer the, right. the the light gets like the wavelength of the light gets when it reaches its destination.
1: Exactly. So okay. if it would be different if we were in a static universe, so, If our universe was just sort of existing, it wasn't changing, it wasn't stretching or collapsing or anything, it was just sitting around being stable, then the light wouldn't change as it moves through space, as it moves through time. But because the universe is not static, it is expanding. So if you picture, for example, picture a balloon or a loaf of bread, and that loaf of bread has a bunch of raisins in it the loaf rises as it cooks, right? And the space between raisins gets bigger and bigger as the loaf gets larger. That loaf is our universe and the raisins are galaxies. And so the space between galaxies gets bigger with time.
0: So it's not necessarily... um, So let's say if the universe wasn't expanding and I found a star that I'm going to name... Uh, I found the star that I'm going to name purple. Purple is my favorite star. And if the universe <laughs> sure. wasn't expanding, the light coming from the star purple, I shouldn't use purple because now people are picturing a purple star. So let's just say a star in my universe that doesn't expand. The light that comes from this star would be the same and would be constant. But because right. the universe is, is expanding, the relative light that comes from there changes over time. To a redder and redder yeah. color yeah. over time
1: exactly exactly because the wavelengths itself the light itself is getting stretched wow. as it travels through space time yeah so, it's
0: wild yeah. wow so how does how can the james webb telescope help inform your research with Betelgeuse specifically
1: so this telescope is exciting for a bunch of different reasons you know They're studying everything from first light and galaxies, how galaxies form, to, you know, how structure forms, how the first stars are formed. And then it's also studying things like exoplanets. You know, it's trying to uncover in high, high, high detail what atmospheres of exoplanets are. And exoplanets, for those who don't know, are just planets that are not in our solar system. They're planets in other systems. And when we study those planets we're trying to learn do they have water on them are they places that we could potentially go or is there life on them so this telescope is really so powerful and searching through so much of the universe that we just get extraordinary amounts of data from it and there are astronomers all over the world where that data is exciting for their research for wow. me specific I know it's, it's, it's the number of science projects that come from a telescope like this are just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's mind blowing. Yeah. Um, there's going to be so much data. We're not going to know how to process all of it at one time. We need more astronomers.
0: <laughs> but it, it's exciting. Um, it's, it's so exciting. It's very, yeah. it
1: is very exciting. And I think, you know, when we try to think about some of these fundamental questions about our universe and our existence, you know, we ask. How did the universe form? What is the fate of the universe? Are we alone in our universe? And this telescope is posed to start answering some of those questions. So as you know, as a, yeah. you know a, as a curious person, even not as an astronomer, but just as someone who wants to learn more about our place in the universe, it's incredibly exciting.
0: You know, this reminds me of, uh, I'm always trying to compare like, the this uh, description of your science to my science,
1: totally. where
0: <laughs> where everyone uh, it, it, there are times where it, the the on my floor where where my neuroscience labs would be, some scientists would get a brand new microscope, a half a million dollar microscope that everyone can share and use, and are really excited to use. And you have to sign up for it on like Google Calendar in order to use it. But it's hot, it's new, and you can. Yes, <laughs> it's
1: also
0: it's also interesting how like one of the primary um, techniques in the biological sciences that get used in experiments is called uh, immunohistochemistry. And basically, what that is, it's it's using uh, engineered antibodies to to uh, to mark uh, specific proteins or. Or cells in uh, in tissue, or on individual cells, and it's interesting because sometimes these um, antibodies are engineered to emit uh, to emit um, fluorescent light when when, uh, they're, when they're excited. Yeah, so cool. you can you can get like uh, fluorescent antibodies that are green or red or purple or whatever, uh, <laughs> but it's oh. great. but they're but they're all on the same plane. Of 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 observation, they're not like uh, at at different distances. They're engineered to glow at a particular wavelength. Uh, but here, that same uh, sort of fundamental aspect of of physics, yeah, yeah, is using it in an entirely different way to measure distance and time.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think you know one of my favorite courses in my career was quantum chemistry, and I'm not a chemist. I don't know anything about chemistry. But I was able to start to understand how the physics that I learned for astronomy can be applied to these tiny, tiny, tiny small scale problems, you know, that are orbitals of uh, an atom and, you know, electrons and how things move on a small scale. And I, I think that's one of the most profound parts about, you know, math and physics is that it really is a language and a tool to describe our universe for whatever science you're doing, whether it's neuroscience, astronomy, biology, um, it's the same fundamental aspects um, that describe our universe.
0: And, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it's really those fundamental discoveries in the sciences that are always like groundbreaking. Like even, even like, uh, I was kind of going back into the history of astronomy and even you know, Ptolemy and Cop- Copernicus, when they're mm-hmm. when they were looking at retrograde motion of objects sh- objects in the night sky, on one hand, when you look at it, it's this tiny object that's maybe the size of your fingernail relative to where you are, moving ever so slightly in the night sky. But in reality, these are planets and that are moving, I don't know, hundreds of hundreds of kilometers yeah. per night instead. And just by uh, just this, this this small motion that they would observe in the night sky, they were able to infer that these planets are actually rotating. In this case, around the Earth, because they were still they still believed geocentric um, right. models of the solar system, and even you know other 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 scientists like um, Eratosthenes, who just by using a ruler. And the shadow was able to infer the circumference of the Earth, something that multi-million-dollar telescopes, uh, telescopes, satellites do today, right? And yeah, and and even in 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 the biological sciences, individuals with brain damage, uh, and inferring language structures in the brain, or inferring vision structures, inferring structures of taste and sense just by in, uh, inducing brain damage by by accident. So it's really awesome that a lot of these great, the greatest discoveries really can be observed with some of the simplest instruments.
1: Yeah, I think that that's such an important concept. You know, whether we're talking about um, vaccines, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about astronomy or neuroscience or biology, um, science is an observed thing. You know that's we do science by collecting evidence, observing particular phenomena, and then interpreting that and making a conclusion. We're not. It's. I think not to um, go too far down this path, but I think you know when people talk about not believing science, it's. Difficult for me to even understand that language because science isn't a belief. It is an evidence-based structure of yeah. understanding the universe. Um, there's no faith in it, there shouldn't be any faith in science. Um, not and I don't mean that from like a religious perspective. I just mean in in a belief-based perspective. Um and so I think, you know, these People, you know, even hundreds of years ago are observing something, measuring something, and then drawing a conclusion from it. And that to me, that's what science is.
0: Good science can stand on its own two feet and it doesn't need, it doesn't need like a public relations tour. It doesn't need, you know, uh, a, it doesn't need to be voted on. Good science is just good science. And that is something I think we all need to be on board for. Especially yeah. when you're in a healthcare crisis or launching a brand new telescope into space, yes, the data doesn't lie. Data is just data. Yeah. Right. Data is just data. Right. Data is just data. So, <laughs> so speaking of data, um, you know, you mentioned that uh, that the universe is expanding, and I'm sure there's data yes. for this. But yes. there's some inconsistencies in in the data about how at what rate is the universe expanding, uh, and From what I understand, this the rate at which the universe is expanding is called the Hubble's constant, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and the Hubble's constant uh, tells us how fast the universe is expanding, and is named after you know Edward Edwin Hubble, who's also named after the Hubble Space Telescope, Uh, and and in the sciences, you know, finding a constant, finding a baseline, finding something that's consistent throughout all your experimental conditions is really, really key in order to interpret any results. But it sounds like an issue that's going on in, in the astrological sciences right now is that
1: astronomical,
0: astronomical <laughs> sciences right now is that the Hubble's constant, that different groups with, within the sciences are finding different values for the Hubble's, for the Hubble's constant. So is, is this an issue that you're familiar with?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the most interesting open questions in astronomy right now. And I'm, to be fair, biased. But, you know, this, to just paint this picture in, you know, let's see, oh, God, 80 years ago, we learned that the universe is not static. It is expanding. And that was surprising at the time. You know, that is not something that's necessarily intuitive um, for anyone. So we learned that the universe is expanding and we thought okay that's that's cool. <laughs> but how fast is it expanding? And then we learned something really astonishing. We learned that the universe is actually getting faster and faster, expanding more and more quickly with time. And that really shouldn't happen. You know, you would think okay, if something is expanding, it's either Going to expand at the same rate forever, or maybe it'll slow down because there's a bunch of stuff in the universe that is gravitationally bound together. But something, some invisible force, is actually pushing the universe to expand faster and faster and faster with time. And that thing is what we call dark energy. And so we are basically trying to understand what dark energy is how it has changed with time. If, was it always there? Was it there in the early universe? Is it going to be there in the late universe? And from that, try to understand what the fate of the universe is. What is the composition of the universe? What is it made of? So to that, um, that's sort of the, the context, the big picture. And one of the, you know, important measurements that we can make In understanding this question, is okay, well, how fast is the universe expanding in our local universe? And you would think, all right, maybe that's something we can just go measure. And then we have a value and we try to interpret that value and learn something about dark energy. Well, that's actually a really difficult measurement to make. And what we have found is that the early universe measurements about the rate of the expansion of the universe are different than our current rate of the expansion of the universe
0: so so let me let me clarify here you're saying that the rate of the expansion of the universe when looking at it from the perspective of the early universe is different from the rate of expansion when looking at it in the current universe
1: that's exactly right yeah yeah. So
0: somebody has some explaining confusing. to do here. Exactly. <laughs> somebody, right. somebody made a mistake. When <laughs> <making this thing. laughs> yeah, exactly. We're like,
1: oh, did someone just like dramatically mess up their experiment? <laughs> like what is going on here? And so obviously I think, you know, as a, as a scientist, that is the initial reaction is, oh, someone messed up. There's some uncertainty we don't understand. There's some instrumental thing that's going on that we just, we don't get. We need to fix that. And then the the measurements will align. And what's really extraordinary is that the more we're studying it, the different types of ways that we're trying to measure this thing, this tension continues to exist. They are continually different. And so then we have to ask, well, is there some different physics going on? Is there different physics in the early universe than right now? Is there some... Modified gravity is there, you know, is there something that we in, need to introduce to the fundamental standard model of physics in order to explain this difference?
0: Uh, is there something within the fabric of space time right. or dark matter or something we're not observing, something we're not measuring right. that's changing the rate of the expansion of the universe? Because exactly, if the laws of physics hold true, it shouldn't speed up or slow down necessarily, right? It should be consistent. But something is pulling at it or changing it. And we don't know what that is, apparently. Yeah. Dark matter.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we, 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 we know that dark energy and dark matter. But in this case, we know dark energy is a thing. We know it exists. But we don't understand how it behaves. And what we're learning basically is that early universe measurements and late universe or current universe measurements are different. And so something has to give, it could be physics is different, which would be wild. And that's, you know, a Nobel prize in the making or it could just be (laughs) that someone didn't calibrate their, their instrument correctly. And you know, we need to fix that. So that's part of my, my dissertation. My thesis is using, exploding stars using supernova to measure this rate of expansion in our local universe and try to get an independent measurement.
0: Wow. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of spooky, you know, to do re it's like, so it's spooky in that we're, we're using this, this technology and now, now I'm just going off now I'm just like freelancing for the rest ah. of this episode. Uh, yes. it's, it's just like, it's just spooky how how we're using this technology to effectively go back in time to look at the origins of our own freaking ex- yes. existence. Uh, and you know, while I do want to know what that is, I'm also really scared. I'm scared because what what was it? what yeah. did it look like? And I don't know, like, it reminds me of like one of my favorite TV shows. Um, and this is just going to show, um, how, how much of a nerd I am, which is <laughs> it's, it's called Stargate universe. It got canceled oh, in like yeah.
1: 2011. Oh, but I know Stargate. I, <laughs> so, so
0: this, so this series was about like an ancient, like human race that found like some kind of structure in the cosmic background radiation of the universe like not randomness, but some kind of organization. And they sent like a spaceship to, <laughs> to go.
1: <laughs>
0: to so see. It the... TV <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, this is cool. Impossible, but cool. Um, so it, it's, it's, it, it fascinates me. Uh, but it's also scary uh, t- to know that we have this, we, we have this technology to find their origins, but, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's terrifying. Um,
1: I think that's actually one of the reactions that I get a lot when I talk about the work that I do is, oh, that's really scary. And I think for me, it never once came to my mind that that was a scary thing. Um, and so it's interesting when I'm you know doing science communication or when I'm just casually talking about what I do, because I think I'm, I'm learning that a lot of people feel this like existential dread or fear uh, when they think about how vast the universe is. And, you know, when I say we only know 4% of everything in our universe, four to 5%, everything else is dark matter or dark energy. And we have no idea what those things really are. Um, and for me, you know, as a scientist, that's so exciting because there's so much to learn. There's so much to explore. Um, but I think for a lot of people, you know, they think, wow, we are kind of lost in this, you know, abyss. And how do you, uh, I lost my mic. Um, how do you uh, sit with that? And I think this kind of ties back to your first question of how do you get into astronomy? For me, I look up at the night sky and I think about these big questions and it gives me perspective that, you know, what happens on earth, you know, maybe I got in a fight with my boyfriend or maybe I, you know, got a bad grade on a test. That really doesn't matter in the cosmic sense of things. Yeah. And that to me is so reassuring and so beautiful.
0: Yeah, uh, I I was... um. I was listening to this other podcast once, uh, I forget the name of the the, the astronauts that were, were discussing this, but uh, there's, there's a name for this phenomenon where you... The
1: overview effect.
0: Yeah, when you, <laughs> <laughs> when you see the earth for the first time, and it, it changes your worldview completely, that when you see this planet, and you look out into the universe, the emptiness of the universe everything that's ever happened in human history happened on that little tiny marble that you're now staring at from above and how insignificant. Uh, a lot of the problems we have, I'll be frank, like a lot of the problems we have are just stupid, uh, fighting over vaccines, fighting over, I don't know, election, whatever fighting over, uh, you know, the right to choose. Like, I think that a lot of these problems are, are human, are human made. Uh, and I think are are not what we should be necessarily focusing on as a civilization, right? Because um, the future, I think, is in the stars, and we, I think, are a space bound civilization. So, you know, w- science, I think, should be you know the tip the tip of the spear when when poking the future. Uh,
1: totally.
0: Yeah, science and technology, uh, and physics. Uh, and medicine, I think, are going to be the things that unify us and unify us around problems and issues in health and issues in t- technology and inequality as well. Um, while, yes, maybe, while, yes, there are issues within like academia, for example, where, you know, most tenure professors are like straight white males, or uh, a, there's an imbalance of grants that are awarded for black scientists and white scientists, or uh, admissions, admissions rates for, for people of color in the sciences. Um, while yes, uh, those are issues. Um, uh, I do think that there should be no question when it comes to the righteousness and the rightness of science. So, you know, we, 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 we faced a lot of these questions during the pandemic as to what is a, what is a vaccine? What is, what is an MRNA? What is the immune system? And it's like, man, like. Just believe us, man. We're not making this stuff up. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, both can be true. You know, you can have this, you can appreciate just how profound some of these questions are that we're thinking about and that we're trying to solve. And you can gain a deeper appreciation for what we have here on earth. And you can say, you know, I want to apply this sort of cosmic perspective or, you know, whatever you want to call it to cherish and value the things that we do have and say you know I'm going to frankly put away all this bullshit and and focus on what really matters um and I, I think this is honestly I was thinking about this this morning with all of these scientists on social media right now I you know primarily follow astronomers of course and Everybody is freaking out with joy about the James Webb Space Telescope. You know, there is this like really profound excitement and 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 joy that comes with watching this project that has been decades in the making unfold in real time. And contrast that to, for example, epidemiology Twitter, where, you know, people are really freaking out right now with how you know, equitable vaccine distribution and how Omicron is sort of ravaging through communities. And, you know, it's, it's so sad because I, you know, I want to be in a place where I can fully appreciate what's going on, it, you know, with this monumental space telescope being launched into space and gathering data. But I also have to say, you know, we need to also figure out how to take care of people here on Earth right? We need to figure out a way where we are prioritizing you know, people's health and, and making sure that people are being treated like humans. And a lot of the time, I think that is lost. You know, people say, why are we spending $10 billion on a space telescope when we have problems here on earth? And the point is, in my belief is, you know, we need to be able to do the science. We need to be able to prioritize the science. And we also need to figure out how to educate people, how to um, you know, increase science literacy and get people uh, in a position where they can then, you know, make informed decisions about their lives and 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 function in a in a science literate society. Um, and I don't know how good of a job we're doing in that right now, to be honest with you
0: I you know i I, I agree. i have I don't know how good of a job we're doing either. I mean, during the Apollo space space missions, you know, you would have you would have this Apollo rocket sitting on the platform ready to launch, but just a few miles away protests about why we're spending tens of billions of dollars of rockets when we don't have stable housing for for underprivileged individuals. And while, yes, you know, that's absolutely a valid concern. We do need to do both because yeah. eventually they're going to feed into each other where where um, why are we spending? Why do labs spend hundreds of millions of dollars developing medicine that people, you know, can't afford and only certain people who are wealthy enough who, uh, who can afford it. Uh, Well, this feeds back, this feeds back in that now we have healthcare inequality and vaccine inequality because we haven't been paying attention to those communities that need that healthcare in the first place. Uh, So I think that um, it it absolutely feeds, feeds into each other. There is a humanitarian aspect to science, whether it's, having access to data, uh, having access to education as well, having access to, uh, you know, are you close enough to a school where you can walk or take a bus? Uh, Do you have access to graduate level science teachers or modern laboratories? Like I didn't touch my first pipette, which is like a tool in the sciences to lift small liquids uh, until I was already a junior in undergrad. And by the time that happened, yeah. And by the time that happened, I realized like everyone else in this lab has been, has been doing this for three, four years. And and that's like a critical point in grad applications, your junior year, where you're expected to have like two years of research experience. And I was just getting started uh, and their parents, you know, have graduate degrees or went to college and whatnot. And all these things feed into each other where a lot of you know, uh, a lot of scientific talent never gets tapped into because we're not yeah. paying attention to the people who need who need who need the education and access to the sciences. So
1: exactly.
0: and I think that, you know, this is a new role for scientists now where we have to have a, a community engagement aspect to what we do or, or pro bono science, Absolutely. if you will. Um, and this is something I think that's emerging emerging in recent years.
1: Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why things like this podcast are so important, and why representation matters, why science communication matters, because you can start reaching communities that have historically been excluded from the sciences or you know, not not had access at all um, by increasing science literacy, by increasing involvement from scientists to um, people outside of the sciences. I think I'm curious if it's the same in in your field, but. I know in physics, especially, people love to sort of pat themselves on the back and and say, oh, I'm so smart. I you know, can derive X number of equations, and I only want to talk science to my peers and nobody else. And people sort of isolate themselves in this ivory tower of academia. Yeah. And I think that is incredibly damaging because it leads to things like vaccine hesitancy, and it leads to things like you know, climate change deniers and flat earthers and all of these other, you know, belief-based systems because people are not given, you know, don't have access to uh, understandable, accessible communication of how scientists reach conclusions and why those conclusions are important and how they directly impact people outside of the sciences.
0: Yeah, I agree. And ironically, uh you spent all these years studying one very specific thing and you're the expert in this one equation or one yes. approach in the sciences and while yes you may be the expert in that one thing and smart in that one specific area ironically it's made you dumber in like every other area
1: yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. i'm the first to say i idiot in a bunch of different areas of my life <laughs> it's totally true i might know physics i don't know anything about animals like that is animal <laughs> it's, like, it's like ridiculous <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't i don't it's embarrassing i um, mean but even, yeah
0: <laughs> e- even something as simple as like interview skills like yes. in grad programs yes. there's there's like no workshops on how to even have how to do an interview how to have an interview yeah. and 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 when it comes time to like get a real job you're woefully inadequate in in yes. in conducting yourself during an interview, but you right. can talk all day and night about, you know, what you see under a microscope and whatnot. So this, I think yeah. is a major uh, uh, issue area that we should focus on, but you know, I don't know if that's yeah. going to get solved, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready
1: We need more people who know how to talk science and share it with the world. That's like, really, I truly, truly, truly believe that.
0: I, I, I 1000% agree. And you are one of those people. And you know, if, if somebody wants to talk science with you, uh, yes. and, and follow up with you from this podcast episode, how would they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, I am on socials at star SF. Um, you can also find me on my website, starathena.com really bad puns that I just like never really got out of. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I would, I would love to, to chat and, um, yeah anybody who has any science questions, space questions, representation, woman's health i'm I'm happy happy to to talk.
0: And all these issues are really important um, and sh- we should really be discussing them out in the open and having scientists leave their lab space or leaving their basement or wherever they do their work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and enter the real world as as yes. human beings, I think is is really important to to give us ammo against misinformation that would eventually come in the future because there are going to be other scientific, uh, other crises that we would need scientists for, uh, mm-hmm. trusted voices uh, to talk about them with. Um, I know there's this movie on Netflix called, uh, what was it called? Don't Look Up? Don't Look Up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of. That was a scary movie. Uh, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. Uh, but yeah. I think we can be in a position to create a space where scientists are, are, trusted individuals where they're your neighbors, they're your friends you see at the grocery store, they're your colleagues, you see them at church or wherever wherever you worship uh, and you can talk to them. Uh, so get out the lab and get out there, please, is the message of this episode.
1: Yes! Hear, <laughs> here.
0: here. <laughs> so uh, with that, Serafina, uh I love this episode a lot. I learned a lot um, and I'm so excited to I'm so excited to have you on. So thanks a lot. Thanks so much for
1: having me. I am a blast. Thank
0: you. Yo, thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Thoughts, Science and Social Justice Podcast. I got to say, this is one of the funnest episodes I've recorded in a long time. Be sure to follow the podcast at deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on Instagram. Hit me up if you have any cool episode ideas. Got to check out that Patreon. This is a people-powered podcast needs your support we're trying to upgrade all the equipment we're trying to increase our reach we have to produce science communication check out that patreon dm me if you have any questions we're here all day i'll see you next time